You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast of the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome baking guru, Rose Levy Barenbaum. In today's episode, we'll talk to Rose about the path to expert baking, her latest cookbook, the Cookie Bible, and we'll hear Rose's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As always, we launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. Baking is no joke. It takes patience, perseverance, and precision. There's no form of cooking more humbling, in my opinion. Julia knew this. Cooks are most often much better at either pastry or savory, so it's hard to do both really well because they not only require different techniques, but different temperaments. Julia, however, was intent on mastering both. She delighted in the technical details that baking and pastry require, and her cookbooks comprehensively cover the basics of both. There's even a cookie recipe in Mastering the Art of French Cooking, and yes, I did have to look that up. Julia was determined to figure it out, and she was equally determined to teach us to do it ourselves. This led her on a career-long quest culminating in her Baking with Julia book and television series. Someone equally revered for her baking know-how and thoroughly tested recipes is Rose Levy Barenbaum. Rose is the award-winning author of 12 cookbooks, including The Cake Bible, which was inducted into the International Association of Culinary Professionals Culinary Classics, and The Baking Bible, IACP's 2015 Best Baking Book. Rose received a James Beard Foundation Award in 1998, for Rose's Christmas Cookies, and her 2003 The Bread Bible was an IACP and James Beard Foundation nominee. The Bread Bible also made Publishers Weekly and Food and Wine's Top 10 Book of the Year lists. Rose's hosted her own PBS television series and was inducted into our own HRN's International Hall of Fame, celebrating those whose accomplishments in agriculture, food, and beverage have furthered HRN's mission to make the world more equitable, sustainable, and delicious. If you already know Rose's reputation and thought references to her as baking royalty were a figure of speech, nope, she was knighted by the Swiss government for her work. Through her popular blog, realbakingwithrose.com, she's fostered an international community of bakers. She also teaches classes on crafty and has her own line of specialized baking equipment. 
Rose joins us today to share her passion for baking and to tell us all about her latest cookbook, The Cookie Bible. Welcome to the podcast, Rose. Thank you, Todd. I just love that quote from Julia because recently I was trying to decide if my middle name should be Precision or Perseverance, and that was spot on. <laughs> yeah, you could. Well, you can always add. You you could be Rose P. P. Levy Barrymore. Oh, that doesn't sound too. Although good, actually, Todd. that doesn't sound very good when I say that. So no, yes, no, skip actually. that idea. But Julia was my inspiration. I wanted to write the way she wrote, and. That's how she was, too. I totally identified with her. Yeah, no. Well, it seems like you're like-minded. And and I was struck by, I hadn't thought too much before about the fact that Julia did really cover both pastry and savory and baking, mm -hmm. which, now that I think about it, is actually quite unusual. Yeah, she once uh, told me that there are, are two different types of brains. And in fact, when the French Culinary Institute had a sort of a, you had, when you wanted to be a member or to go and study there, you had to take a test to see which brain you had so they could decide if you'd be better off being a pastry student or a savory student. Very few people oh, can wow. ride the cusp of both. In fact, Julia once told me when I said I was going to do a savory book, she said, people think of you as dessert. You can cross that border, but it's not easy. And she knew because she had yeah, done Yeah, no, it. and that, that's not to say you can't be good at both, but usually mm. someone has a higher aptitude for one or the other because, like you said, it often has to do with how your brain works. So how did you discover how your brain works? When when did you discover that you were passionate and, and, and adept at baking? When I went to the University of Vermont, that was the first college that I went to, and I had never had a homemade dessert before. But of course, New England would be bakers of apple pies and things like that. And I had my first cake that was made by somebody who lived there, you know, just a lady who happened to live near the campus. And it was an epiphany. I thought, can this really be done and taste this good? I, I wasn't that interested in sweets before that. And then I mm. happened to pass by the lab at one of the classes and I saw somebody holding a thermometer and taking the temperature of a syrup. I don't know why that impressed me. It just hit me that I want to do this. And of course, that speaks to my scientific bent because baking is based on an understanding of scientific principles of what the components of the ingredients are and how you can adjust them if you know what's in them. So that was the beginning. Yeah, no, and I think people really discount how much chemistry there is to cooking and that cooking is scientific. And it's often because people who become cooks don't necessarily study the sciences. But in many ways, it takes a scientific brain because a lot of it is learned just by training and practice and intuition. But ultimately, everything that's happening is a a chemical equation. Exactly. And you don't have to know oxygen and antimony and all those different valences. You just have to know how things behave with each other and what they consist of. Because I think the word chemistry kind of frightens people. And in fact, when people called me a food scientist, I really protested because I thought that was the antithesis of art and creativity at that time. And this is like 35 <laughs> years ago. You know, oh, don't call me a food scientist. I'm a creative baking writer. Yeah, I know. It kind of has connotations as a white lab coat at Nabisco coming up with a new form of snack food. Exactly. But people ate it up. They loved that information. And in fact, the first person who really embraced this was before the Cake Bible. And that was Chris Kimball in Cook's Magazine. That was the first article I wrote for a food magazine. It was called Understanding the Genoise. And nobody else would have let me do that and go into depth and let me test all those different ways. And people loved it. 
So it was just the yeah, beginning no, I think of that interest. More, yeah, there's more of that hunger for why things work and how they work. And of course, the more you understand about it, the more you know what things you can play with and what things you can't. In fact, I'm going to tell you a funny story right now um, because we were at home using your brownie recipe, which is in Food 52's Genius Recipe Books. That's right. I'm not misremembering that. I'm yeah. wondering because I remember that the oblivion is there, but I don't think the brownie is. Well, it may be. But anyway, you I were think, making it. I'm pretty sure it is, but it's still huh. the, the, the topic is still right. Is I'd made it. It was delicious. And I taught our, our, our nanny to make it. And she made it the first time. and But then a couple of times it kept coming out very strange. It tasted delicious, flat as a pancake. Mm. And I couldn't figure out what she was doing wrong. It went over the ingredients, went over the method, all of that, four times. Finally, I go to the fridge and I take out our spreadable butter. <gasps> and she had been using yeah. Lurpak spreadable, which you right away know what's wrong, right? What mm. was she doing wrong? I think that spreadable stuff has other things in it. It's not just 100% butter. Exactly. It's mm. full of oil. That's what makes it spreadable. And obviously, if you're not using per, pure butter, using butter mixed with oil, it changes the chemistry of the recipe. It doesn't work the same way. Notice I wasn't even sure what was in it because of the fact that I don't have anything to do with it. You know, I don't have it in my refrigerator. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually not bad stuff, Lurpa. I mean, it's a, but but it right, and it would took forever because on the list she was like, you know, to her butter's butter, but in, of course this was not pure butter, and that has a huge impact. Okay, the funniest thing about about ingredients is when I was doing a demo at Gustavus and somebody came up, stood up, and asked out of the audience, "Can you substitute something banana?" And I said, for the banana cake? You know, like, why are you making the banana cake? <laughs> and, but before I could say much more, my editor, Marie Bornichelli, her husband, said, yes, watermelon. He was trying to point out, <laughs> I'm going to have hysterical laughing. I'll never forget because this is years ago. But this is the thing. When I hear the word, can you, I always know that substitute is going to follow it. And that's, it hurts my heart because I know that you can't just arbitrarily substitute if you don't know what the ingredients is composed of. If you do know, yes, you can play around or you can play around and find out, but it's not going to be 100% the same. And, and just to clarify, Maria Guarnaschelli's husband was joking because if you substitute no. banana with water, I, I don't think you can make a cake with watermelon. It's way too wet. Have you ever tried? No, I just, I knew what he was getting at. I made a watermelon yeah. ice cream, but that's not made out of watermelon. It's made to look like a, yeah. a watermelon. Well, I was clarifying for listeners not to try that at home. Oh, right. <laughs> it's not going to work. Yeah, you Banana have to, cake. Yeah, if you're a sarcastic New Yorker, that's what you, you understand right away what he meant by that. And he was. <laughs> I don't think he came from New York originally, but he got the way to do it. You know, like, sure, use watermelon. I think sometimes people just want to be heard. So they ask questions even if they don't really Want to know the answer? I can't believe she really wanted to make that cake and use something other than banana, but she just wanted everybody to hear her, and that's okay too. It's fun. Yeah, mm -hmm. look, it's created a story and, mm -hmm. and uh, mm -hmm. more memorable than probably some demos you've done. Maybe she'll hear this um, and oh, that was me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the watermelon cake turned out great. Um, so, at what point did you, you, you? That was a really clear kind of you know, aha moment that you had that got you interested in baking. At what point did you kind of go from just learning to bake and practicing baking to being a cookbook author? 
Like, what was was there a specific like, oh, I'm going to do this, or did it just happen very gradually? Well, that's really nobody's ever asked that question, and it didn't take me long in my mind to immediately remember the process because I had a cooking school. This was many years ago. It was called the Cordon Rose Cooking School, meaning pink ribbon. Okay, so it's a play on my name, and. One of the students at one of the classes, after several classes, I still remember his name, Dominic Abel. He's from England. And he said, my wife sent me to take your class because she does the cooking, but I wanted to make desserts. And your desserts are blowing her her main recipes out of the water. I just love that. And he said, and my wife happens to be an agent for a literary agent. And would you like to write a proposal to do a cookbook? And I've always hated having to write things up before the fact. I just wanted to do the thing that I was supposed to do. So I, he kept asking me to write it, and I kept not doing it. But it planted the seed in my mind that writing a cookbook might be a very nice thing to do. So when Irena Chalmers started her Great American Cooking School series, she asked me if I would like to contribute the one on cakes. And I didn't know that series had to be the exact same number of pages for each book. So I wrote three times the amount that was publishable. And <clears throat> she said, and she stayed up all night and I stayed up all night separately. Of course, I, t- I took all the things out I wanted to take and each thing I wanted to take out, she said, oh, not that, not that. So she said, don't worry, someday you can publish the whole thing under one cover. And that's what became the Cake Bible, but it grew to at least 10 times the size of it. So I've always been known to overwrite because I like to share so many things and so many recipes. And then those recipes become the next book or part of the next book. It's just an ongoing process. And now we have the eBooks. Yeah, I love that. That That's really interesting. And I, I like the Julia parallel too, that you were actually a teacher before you were a cookbook author. And that that, that was kind of part of the entree for you is wanting to, to teach others and share your knowledge. I didn't know that. Yeah, and interestingly, when I was studying, getting my master's at NYU in one of the classes, the teacher wrote that I was on my paper that I was a born teacher. And I remember I was very shy as, as a little girl. And when I when my first classes, we had show and tell. And when I could talk about something else, I lost all my shyness. So I've always loved being able to explain things to people and describe things to people. And that was why really being an author made total sense. But I have to say that Writing instructional writing is the hardest thing in the world. I'm much better at telling stories, or not better at it, because I am good at instructional writing, I have to confess. But I love the writing of the headnotes, the best part. And I usually save that for the end after everything, all the hard work is done. Oh, it's dessert. <laughs> exactly. Well said. And so I'm hoping someday to do a memoir. And I've already started my, some of my best stories are on my blog already because I just can't keep them. You know, once I write it up, I want them to go out into the world and people to see them. And if I don't get a response, I think maybe I shouldn't continue. And then suddenly somebody write, writes on the, on the, the Squarespace, please give us more. We just love these. And I think, oh, thank goodness. <laughs> you never know if what's of interest to you is going to matter to anybody else. Well, speaking of that, I want to ask you about one of the other stories I discovered in in preparing to talk with you. So like Julia, you have a bunch of trusted collaborators. So I wanted to ask you, who's Woody, what's Mm -hmm. Rosewood, and how does this impact your work today? First of all, I have to say that Publishers Weekly, when they did a little article on collaborative cookbook writing, and they chose three different groups couples, so to speak. And when they did me and Woody, they ended up titling it Partners in Creme. 
And I thought that was the perfect description. I didn't really want to write with anybody else. I was used to work totally working on my own. And then um, Woody came along. I was doing the cookie exchange for gold medal flour in Minnesota. And he happened to write to me that morning that I was about to depart, that if I ever come to Minnesota, he would like to meet me and make two cakes for me so that I could see what he was doing from the cake Bible. And they were so perfectly made, I thought maybe I could give him a couple of recipes to test for the upcoming book I was doing. I think that was Heavenly Rose's Heavenly Baking, uh, Cakes, rather. So uh, I saw how perfectly he was working, but in those days, we didn't have the technology that was easy to work long distance. And then along came something in Google where you could actually show the texture of things. You could show videos. So for several years, we worked together long distance. And then finally, he came for a week in New York to see if we could actually work together. And it was just bliss. He always knew where to put his hands, where my hands were, what to do. He went back and then several years later, when we moved out here to New Jersey, to Hope, New Jersey, uh, he also moved here. And he's been here, I think, 10 years now. And we've been working on the last three, four books together. Can't I lose count with how many books and <laughs> that I've had, period. I have to look at the bookcase. Anyway, Last June, oh, five. Okay, I just saw his hand come in front of my face because <laughs> he's not supposed to talk. He knows. So yeah, five. He's coaching. Yeah, he's silent very, coaching. He yeah. does. He's. We are so compatible, but he does. He he does some things I'm not good at. Excel strikes terror in my heart. He's a master of that. You know. So not only do we see things the same way, but he adds immeasurably to what I'm doing, to the point where a year ago, June. 21st we got married and I told my editor at the time the book was about to come out and I said look oh not about to come out but about to go to the printer and she said not a single other correction and I said but I do have one addition and that's that instead of saying this is dedicated to my partner Woody I have to change it to husband or now my husband and she loved it and of course they made the change edition so that's the story of Rosewood that it's so it's such a beautiful and lovely story and and uh, you know nothing like the precision of baking to bring two people romantically together i think is lovely mm, thank you i want to cover this kind of thing that i'm str struck by which i don't know why i find so funny but it feels like you're in the bible business and yeah. that seems so different to me than cookbooks but i wanted to ask you about that and and ask you what you know what makes the your latest cookbook why did you feel like there was, you know, time for a Bible about cookies, the cookie Bible? Interestingly enough, somebody recently said, why do you call it a Bible? Uh, do, do you have absolutely everything in it that would be all-inclusive? And I said, no, that's not what a Bible is. That's an encyclopedia. A Bible is something, <laughs> that's the way, I mean, on the spot, I, I thought of that because I hadn't really thought about why I was calling it a Bible because originally... It was Bert Green, who was one of the first people to have a takeout food um, thing in East Hampton. Or I think it was the Hamptons. Anyway, he was a major food personality, and he called me one day, and he said, Rose, you have to write Berenbaum's Baking Bible. And I said, well, actually, the thought crossed my mind because I realized I was doing something that in-depth, uh, that spiritual. <laughs> and I said, uh, if you think that's such a great idea, why don't you write Bert's Bible? And he said, well, I've been wanting to, but I've been living with the minister's son for 18 years who won't let me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I laughed and I, and I told my editor. And 
we were, this is really funny, we were at the NASFT, the specialty food show, and we both happened to go to the bathroom at the same time, and we were in adjoining stalls, and all of a sudden she yells out, Rose, don't throw out the Bible, and I imagine what people in the bathroom were thinking, they was like, what, you know, but she said, it's a wonderful name, it's powerful, so I started looking to see if anybody had ever written a cookbook called a Bible. And there wasn't a single Bible book except the gun Bible. And I thought if somebody could use the word Bible connected with something of violence, I could certainly use it in connection with something as gentle and beloved as cake. So that's how I feel about Bible and the Bible term. Plus, when my great uncle was 92, he was the one who designed the Movado watch with the dot, the museum piece. And I always looked up to him, mm. the creativity. So I didn't have the final book. Of course, I just had at that point the cover and I did a black and white and I drew happy birthday, Uncle Nat. Little did you know that uh, little did your father, the rabbi, know that someday you would have a great granddaughter that write a, wrote a Bible. I get the chills remembering that because it was, he, he told me afterwards that he thanked me for making the family proud. And that meant the world to me because I always so looked up to him and I never thought that I would have an achievement anywhere near what he had done. I mean, he changed the way time was perceived in a wristwatch and I changed the way baking was, cakes were mixed. And it was yeah, just... Yeah, no, I can, I can instantly picture that, that watch. Mm -hmm. And I never really was interested in baked goods because my mother was actually a dentist and she didn't bake at all. And she, in fact, she kept anything sweet away from me. So when I started baking, my goal was to make it less sweet, to make the predominant flavor other than sugar. And of course, if it's not sweet at all, then it's not a dessert. So I think I could do that flour, I could do that many ingredients, but... It cannot do without sugar in a dessert. It defines dessert. Well said. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with more Cookie Talk with baking guru, Rose Levy-Berenbaum. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back. We're talking to acclaimed baker, Rose Levy Barenbaum, about her newest cookbook, The Cookie Bible. So one thing that I was struck by in this book, which, which lives up to it, its title very well, it's beautiful, it's comprehensive, it's authoritative, and it, it's motivating, actually, too. Um, just so many recipes you want to try, even if they're things that you make, because it's, it's also, I would say, full of classics. Um, but I, I also was struck by 
and this is maybe me having just moved back to California from 10 years in London, but many people think of cookies or the word cookie is very American. But I was struck by how many international recipes and not constructed international ones that are French or Italian or Swiss or German that are in the book that, you know, you would define as cookies. And then also there's bars and brownie recipes was part of the idea of the Bible that you wanted to redefine what a cookie is. I never intended to, because I didn't look at it like that. Uh, Mm -hmm. The word cookie actually is the Dutch word for little cake. So then there's some that are even cake cookies. I, I think cookie is kind of loosely defined as something that's small and loved and lovable. And actually, I've traveled a great deal and I've seen cookies in different cultures. I don't necessarily like all of them, but the ones that I took home with me are the ones that I included. So I basically, I wanted to complete my quartet of Bibles, so to speak, and have a cookie Bible. And that had meant that it was going to be much larger than the one that was just designed to be around holiday cooking. In fact, you can make these any holiday cookies any time of year if you don't put Christmas trees and Santa Claus or whatever menorahs on them, you know. But when it's called Christmas cookies, people tended to think of it just as Christmas cookies, and it was so much more. So I wanted to add to it and do my favorite ones and improve on the other older ones. It was a lot of fun remaking those cookies. Oh, my mouth's watering remembering. It's always wonderful to have lots of cookies around, but, you know, people think cookies are easy, and in fact, they are. They're forgivable. You can take a little piece of the dough before you commit to baking it and add a little flour if it's getting to spread too much or add a little sugar if it isn't sweet enough to your taste, which you can't do with most other baking. But the difficult part is that instead of making just like one cake, you're making at least two dozen cookies. And that shaping is what takes more time, or that dropping it. It's easy, but it takes time. And actually, I've noticed that people seem to be making smaller recipes, and instead of asking if you can increase recipes, asking if you can decrease. So we actually made a smaller final amount so that people, if they choose, can make more. I mean, around the holiday, you want to give it as gifts, but other times, you don't necessarily want to make four dozen cookies. They don't keep as well, although most cookies keep really better than most other things but you want to eat them so that they disappear faster. Well, yeah, and I think the bite-sized nature makes you think like, well, I can, you know, where mm-hmm. you're, you'd be careful to have one piece of cake. You might be like, oh, I'll have the fifth cookie. It's just a cookie. There's one cookie that we both love so much that we actually cut them in half so they'd last longer. And those are the truffles stuffed into a chocolate cookie with the centers, but after it's baked, still stays creamy. And the second uh, time I yeah, made that's it, like a, it's like a what there's a what's the and I'm blanking on what the dessert is called, but with lava it's like cake, yeah, it's the cookie, lava cookies, yeah, exactly. It's probably my favorite recipe in the book. No, I well, I love you called that out, and and uh, and I'm sure lots of people ask you that and would want to know, like, what is what is Rose's favorite cookie or most eaten? Mm-hmm. So I, I also saw that you have, not surprisingly, strong and, and also well-informed views on flour. So I wanted to give you that opportunity to also kind of um, share that insight with us. What is it important or what do you believe is most important to know about the use of flour and what flour to use when you make cookies? It's the one ingredient that you really, really should weigh. I mean, I'm a great proponent of weighing as opposed to measuring. But if you are measuring it, then follow the directions of how to measure, which my directions are to spoon it lightly into the cup and level it off. I notice a lot of people don't say how they 
measure flour in books. And that's really an oversight because instead of, say, having one cup, you could have as much as one and three quarter cups if you do what they call the dip and sweep or if the flour has been sitting and the vibrations of the cars going by make it settle more, you know. So I said flour is really important as far as how you measure it. And the type of flour also makes a difference, bleached versus unbleached. And some cookies I call for, for the unbleached and some most of them I think have bleached because actually unbleached has slightly higher protein, which means they brown faster. So sometimes I want that because cookies bake for such a short time that I want them to get browner rather than just raising the heat, which would give another textural change. But also, when you use the higher protein flour, it, it absorbs the liquid in the cookie faster. So it's not available for puffing up. And if you want puffy cookies, you're better off using, in most cases, the, the bleached flour. With the unbleached flour, it spreads less as well. So those are all the factors. And, you know, we give all that information in the book as well, because a cookie, even if it's not perfect, is wonderful. But if you if you really want to have your cookies be the best and achieve the goal that is, in your mind, the best, then these are the kind of things that are helpful to know. Do you want to also say a word about the right equipment? I think oftentimes that's where people get into trouble in baking too, is they, you know, savory cooking is more forgiving about mm-hmm. the, this type of pan or that type of baking dish, but it, it makes a difference in baking, right? Whether you're using the precise equipment or not. Well, for one thing, I don't usually like cookie, those what's called cookie scoops. They're actually portioning scoops because some of it stays in the scoop. So you don't really have the whole amount on the sheet Mm -hmm. or however you're baking it. And if you bake smaller cookies together on the same sheet with larger cookies, the larger ones, if you bake them fully, overbake the smaller ones and vice versa. So I like to use either a measuring spoon or eyeball the amounts of like one inch or walnut size or whatever. You don't have to be precise as much as you need to be consistent. And as far as cookie sheets, Well, I like to use parchment on a lot of them. It's easier for cleanup, and it also tends to keep the cookies from spreading at all because they're adhering to the parchment. I don't much use the silpat because I like them to brown more and be crispy on the bottom, but there are a few cookies that require it. So there's a lot of cookie uh, equipment and information as well. Well, and the key thing is it does make a difference to follow it. I'm sure you also get messages routinely from people who say, I made this and it, it came out this way and I don't understand why. And then you realize that because they, you know, didn't follow the directions, you know, to a T and it will have a, have a particularly in baking, will have an impact. I think if someone were going to do another caricature of me, because I've had about two or three, <laughs> and this one would be me with a magnifier like Sherlock Holmes, like, all right, you said it didn't work. What did you do differently? Especially when people say, because we answer all questions on the blog, and when, when somebody says, it always worked before, I've changed nothing, and I know it's, you know, I, I don't know what it is, and I I say this to myself when something changes, like, what changed? What did I do differently? It's always something. And every time the person wrote back saying, you're right, I did such and such, and I didn't think it would matter. And do you enjoy that sort of forensic aspect of of analyzing what, what didn't work or what changed? I enjoy it, especially when it happens to me, because it drives me crazy. And so I can understand how it would drive somebody else crazy. But here I've perfected, I know what I'm doing, and something different happens. And, you know, sometimes it's the ingredients that have changed. It's not the person, it's not the oven or the equipment. In fact, during COVID, 
there was a shortage of flour and I had to actually order a 50 pound bag of flour I wasn't used to using and had to adjust what I was doing, not for testing recipes, but for making things for us. And I found also that people were having trouble, especially with bread, their bread wasn't rising as much. And I took me several days to get to the bottom of it, but it was because one of the things that strengthens flour is that after it's ground, it's allowed a certain amount of time to rest. And it wasn't getting that time because people needed the flour. So it was like, really, I, I felt like a detective. And I was so glad that I figured it out because with bread, you can add a little vital wheat gluten. Maybe you could do that with cookies too, but I don't think with cookies it would have been so significant. It was bread that was the problem there. Yeah, no, and it's like back to my example with those brownies of, of using uh, what mm-hmm. seemed like butter and said butter on the thing, but was was you know included extra ingredient and even right butters vary butters have different <gasps> fat and different water content but didn't you just love that aha moment like got it i figured it out there's something so satisfying it's like doing a, a puzzle which i actually hate because i'm never good at finding all the pieces that go with what but you know it's <laughs> like <laughs> you finally when you do you feel so good about yourself and you're right about what you say about butter a lot of times people think if they decide to quote splurge and get a more expensive butter, which is high fat, that it's better, but it's better for some things like laminated doughs, puff pastry, you know, croissants, things like that. It's not better when a recipe calls for, except if you're doing clarified butter, for a cookie, because you have too much fat to little liquid. So it's going to spread more and puff less. And, you know, you have to really look at the ingredients. And that's why I describe each important ingredient and exactly what it does and exactly what, what we should be looking for. Well, and that's the amazing thing about baking, too, is, you know, unlike maybe, say, and I say this with admiration, an Ottolenghi cookbook, which has, you know, a mile-long mm. list of ingredients often, you know, your most of your recipes are a recombination of five or six ingredients at, at most often. I have to say that there are always great moments in an author's life when another author praises oneself, you know, and when Ottolenghi wrote about one of my books, it just was maybe so happy. But yes, you know, it's kind of different. Savory cooking can be very different or is usually very different, not just can be. Well, I think I was talking about the amazing alchemy and chemistry that we talked about at the beginning of this show, that you can make so many different things out of essentially recombinations of flour, sugar, butter, and water or Something, Isn't it some interesting you, that you should say that because I'm right now, we're working on the revision for the 35th anniversary of the Cake Bible. And I just read the introduction that I wrote and the and the introduction to the butter cakes. And I've written that exact thing that for me, the magic of baking, especially with cake baking, but all baking probably, is that you take these maybe four ingredients and they, hundreds of recipes come out of it with different ways of doing it. It's, that's the magic. Mm. Yeah, I know that. I, I, yeah, that's why I, I that's called that I PBS find. show. That was why the PBS show was called Baking Magic, because it is. Yeah, no, it's really it's magic and science and art together. So I wanted to ask you another collaborator question. Oh, question, because I had had noted that Erin Jean McNowell, um, who we met in episode one hundred and four, talking all about her. Uh, new book, or then new book about pie. And so how did Erin collaborate with you on, on this book, on the Cookie Bible? You know, first of all, I have to start with the end because, not that it's ever the end, but my book was supposed to come out, the Cookie Book was supposed to come out a year ago until it got 
stuck in one of those containers in the Pacific. Aaron's new book, Savory Baking, just came out, or is about to come out, the second practically. And so both of our books are coming out at the same time, and we're having so much fun collaborating and promoting each other's books, because Aaron is the stylist for several of our books, and for the cookie book, especially the ice cream book that was the most amazing cover I've ever seen with all those bowls of ice cream not melting. She is magic. But the way we met was that the photographer, Ben Fink, who was doing Rose's Heavenly Cakes, and, we were, and he was in the uh, Hudson River area. And Aaron, I think, had just graduated from the CIA. And he asked her to come and be an assistant. And she was just amazing. We became friends then. And she, I hired her actually to do the, as the official stylist. I think it was for the next book, The Baking Bible. It's hard to keep track because she's been involved with so many. But, um, oh, yeah, The Baking Bible. And That's then, first, yeah. the, oh, that was her, the first one where she was the actual assistant. And then the next book was The Basics. And she did the beauty shots and then um, the ice cream uh, ice cream bliss and then now the cookie bible and the cookie bible was the only one that we couldn't do together because of covid so we hit over on the phone and i was looking on the computer and she was saying is this right do i have to redo it and we just got to be such close friends that um, my prayer is that she will be the stylist for the cake bible because we've done all these books together and it's just a perfect team I can't say enough about, oh, and I wrote the forward to her book, actually. So um, when her first book, The Pie Book, because that's how how much I had to say about, I predicted how she was the, uh, of the new generation who was going to be one of the top people. And so I feel very proud of myself for having seen that in her because she has really gone skyrocketing. That's so nice. What well, do you want to take a moment and uh, preview? Uh, You've referenced the cake. Uh, book, which is is your next one that's in progress. Do you want to just mention that quickly? Oh, sure. Well, I've been resisting the idea of revising the Cake Bible for many years now, because so many people had grown up with it and had birthday cakes from it and are now writing that they've given it to their grandchildren or their children. And it just seems to me I shouldn't touch it. But so much has changed in 35 years. It's actually going to be 34 years this fall. And this month is its birthday, I think. So I started thinking about all the things that would be worth changing in it. And little by little, and with Woody's pushing me and saying, we really have to do this, uh, I approached our editor. And of course, Marie Gorishelli left tomorrow for many years ago. And Cassie Morgan uh, Jones has, has been the, the one who took it over. And she's become my friend over the years. So I thought, well, I really trust her. And if she's interested in doing this and looking at it as a as a revision, then we should go for it. And it turned out that we wanted to change so much, not only leave out some things that maybe weren't favorites, but to put in things that are new favorites and the new techniques and all the different things that have changed. So at the same time, we weren't expecting this to happen because we thought the cake cookie book would come out last year. But at the same time that we're now doing all these promotions for the cookie book and traveling, we're at the same time working on the revision of the cake Bible. And it, it's due to come out in the fall of 2023. So we're redoing all the photos. Well, that's exciting. And it sounds like it's, it, no, I'm glad you mentioned all of that because it sounds like it's much more than just a, a it's a fully new edition. It's exactly. not just a reissue. Exactly. Wow. And and because we at first I thought maybe we 
can keep all the pictures. You know, it's, it's be so difficult to redo them. And then I realized that, for example, the rose lattice, it's so painstaking. And I don't do that kind of thing anymore. I want the cakes to speak for themselves and to have more simple decorations. And it's nice for a wedding cake to have something really special. But there were several wedding cakes that were supposed to go into the baking Bible, and there wasn't room, as I mentioned earlier, that I tend to overwrite. So now we have the opportunity to replace some of the ones with new ones and to add new ones. And then I realized there has to be new pictures because they don't even have the plates anymore to use the old pictures. So we also have a larger trim size so we can have a larger number of pages so we can do much more. So suddenly it became really a wonderful idea. And I have to say it's easier starting from scratch than trying to tweak things and make them consistent and not change things that shouldn't be changed. And the reason I can do it, it's really interesting. I suddenly realized when I was thinking about it that I can't remember exactly what my thinking was 40 years ago because that's when I started writing the cake bible but I put in understanding in most of the recipes so I can look and see why I did what I did and if I still need to do it that way so that's what is so exciting is I'm revisiting my original work and making it an improvement and getting incredible reaction from people because we just posted last week about the fact that there's going to be a new edition well, it's, it's almost like you wrote yourself a letter into the future in the original. I like that. Yeah. All right, we're going to take another break, and we'll be back with a Rose's Julia moment. You're invited to join us in person in Washington, D.C. on October 13th for the presentation of the 2022 Julia Child Award to Grace Young at the 8th Annual Smithsonian Food History Gala. It will be a delicious evening celebrating Grace's advocacy and Chinese-American culinary contributions. Tickets are on sale at amhistory.si.edu forward slash donate forward slash food hyphen gala. The funds raised support the Smithsonian's American Food History Project, which includes the preservation of Julia's Kitchen. Let us know what you think of today's show. Send us an email or a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org or better yet, you can tweet us at JuliaChildJCF. We'll be right back. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. Well, that didn't go very well. <laughs> See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she might have inspired them in their career. Rose, what's your Julia moment? This was the question I was looking forward to the most because Julia was so much a part of my life. I actually could call her and ask her, well, I'm looking for an agent. What do you think about that? And she said, I've only ever had lawyers. I mean, she was so approachable and so supportive to the food community. But one particular memory stands out, and that's that when I was married at 19, living in Washington Crossing, Pennsylvania, and my, like, my former husband was studying at Temple University that was an hour away, and Julia had just started her PBS show. And I would drive with him every week when he would go to his classes and sit in the girls' dorm. Nobody was watching TV. They were doing their work, their homework, getting to watch Julia on television because we couldn't afford a television of our own. And when I would come back, I would try something, one of the recipes. And I remember in particular, there was this mile-high, no-fail cheese souffle with the coulis de tomate. And I made that for dinner. And here is a six-foot New England 
23-year-old starving and after he it worked perfectly and after he came he finished eating it he said this was wonderful now what's for dinner <laughs> I said that was that was dinner that <laughs> what more could you want after that but the best part of the story is that I never in a million years at that point would have thought that I could ever meet Julia Child let alone be on TV myself so when the cake bible came out and I came home and the first call I think was my mother and the second was Julia and she said I'm so proud of you dearie I get the chills when I bring that story because that was probably one of the best moments of my entire life that not only had I met her but that I was on TV and she was congratulating me for it and that was like life had come a full circle and so you were you were on TV doing your own appearance, not appearing with Oh, Julia. sorry. Yes, I, I was on the same show that she made so famous, Good Morning America. But not on with her. It was no. it was a separate appearance. When one of, was it when one of your other books came out, or what were you on GMA for? I was on for the Cake Bible. That was when the Cake Bible first came out. So that was why she had wanted to congratulate me for having that book and for being on the TV show. Sorry if I wasn't clear about that. No, 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 I was just interested because Julia also did her GMA stuff, but um, uh, I was just interested to know uh, all the details. Well, can I squeak in one little really quick yeah, story? Yeah, yeah, go for it. Go oh, for great, because, okay, Julia and I and several other people were doing a signing, maybe in Rhode Island, I forget where, and we were each given 50 books, and Julia came over to me. I was still signing. She had long since finished, and she said, you're still signing, and I said, yeah. And she said, well, you want to know why? And I said, yes. And she said, well, when people say, oh, Julia, I so love your books. I so love you. I look up and I say, or down because she's so tall. And she said, thank you, dearie. And that was it. She said, whereas you, Rose, when somebody says that to you, you say, let me tell you the story of my life. <laughs> I learned from that. You have, when you, especially when you go on book tour, you have to, and I was giving Erin this advice, you have to hold your energy. You can't just give it all, all the time because you just collapse. And, mm. and that's how Julie was able to do what she was. She was warm, she was giving, but she wasn't excessive. She knew when to stop. I think that's the perfect word. I was just going to say, Julia was, her gift with her ability to communicate so much information so concisely and right, like she gave you a whole lesson in like a professional mentoring lesson, right? In like three mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even like a whole lecture. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Mm -hmm. I love and it. Another time was, was, was with my late husband in an elevator in Philadelphia where we were all doing Book and the Cook. And Julie was the only other person in the elevator. And she said, I see you take your husband with you. That's a good thing. But don't get too, don't have him with you always. You know, and I thought, you know, she was trying to tell me what she had learned because Paul was always there. And she wanted to let me know that you have to sometimes have a separation. So this is the kind of thing that she just was so deep and so well and generous in her giving advice. And I try to be that way too. Well, thank you so much, Rose, for your Julia moments and, and joining us today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, Todd. Our pleasure. Thanks everyone for listening. For more from Rose, it's at Real Baking with Rose on Facebook and Instagram. She's at Flower Rose, that's F-L-O-U-R on Twitter. The new cookbook is, of course, The Cookie Bible by Rose Levy Barenbaum with photographs by Matthew Septimus. Out now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. Ask or search for it at your favorite bookseller. For all the latest from the foundation, it's at Julia Child on Facebook and at Julia Child Foundation on Instagram. 
It's at Julia Child JCF, and I'm at T Shulkin on Twitter. Make sure you're also following at SB Culinary Experience on Instagram for the latest on upcoming events in Santa Barbara. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at GBH. Thanks as always to my co-producer at the foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Armin Spengen. Our theme song, New French Horn by Novi Valjorni. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Inside Julia's Kitchen is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.